I'm sorry, I don't quite know how to put this, but what I'm about to tell you might ruin your Christmas. And parents, just so you, you don't get on edge here, I'm not going to spill the beans on any character whose name rhymes with banana laws or anything like that. But what I'm about to tell you might mess up your Christmas. In fact, at the very least, it's going to change the way you look at Christmas decorations and you look at Christmas cards for the rest of your life. You ready? Here's what I want to tell you. The Bible never says that Jesus was born in a barn. Let me tell you that again. The Bible never says, I mean, it could have happened, but it never says that Jesus was born in a barn, that Jesus was born in a stable, or that Jesus was born in a cave where animals were kept. It never says that. And I'm going to go this one step further. And I, I'm sorry if this dashes your acting career and you had the part or watched a little Johnny play the part of an innkeeper in a Christmas pageant. No innkeeper in the Bible, at least the Bible that I read. There's no innkeeper. Read through the gospel accounts. He's not there. There could have been an innkeeper, but he's not in Luke chapter two. And what's more, cattle lowing, um, doves and sheep and goats and donkeys, they might've been there, but the Bible never says that they were. It doesn't even hint at the fact that there was cattle lowing while the poor Jesus sleeps. Oh, and just so you get it right, Jesus was not born in a manger. A manger, to put it simply, was an animal's feeding dish for medium to large-sized animals. Uh, it was a feeding trough for animals. It would have been absolutely ridiculous for Mary to think, I'm going to hop up in this thing to give birth to my child. No, Jesus was born. And what we just read from Luke chapter 2 tells us that Mary, what? Placed Jesus in a manger. The Bible tells us a lot. It tells us a lot of things about life. It even tells us a lot of things about the beginning of Jesus' life. It tells where he was born. We looked at a prophecy fulfilled from Micah last week that said he would be born in Bethlehem. And here in Luke chapter 2, we read it. A prophecy was fulfilled. He was. But when it comes to the nursery room or the hospital room that Mary gave birth to Jesus in, the Bible doesn't tell us much. It doesn't actually tell us who is all there. It doesn't tell us what the scene looked like. All it says was that Jesus was placed in a manger. And in fact, if you read all of Luke chapter 2, which we will do next weekend, by the way, what you'll notice is that, well, God, through his holy writer, Luke, seems to be making a point of it. He says that there was no room and so Mary wrapped Jesus and placed him in a manger. Furthermore, when the angels came and gave the angelic announcement, what did they say? This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby where? Not in some cave out in the hills where animals are kept. No, you're going to find him wrapped in cloths. And you get this, he'll be lying in a manger. And verse 17, just a few verses later, what 
do the shepherds do? They hurry off and they find Mary and Joseph and the baby where? Out in some stable? No. They found the baby lying in a manger. So help me out here. Why are all our nativity sets picturing a stable, a barn? Why do the Christmas cards you send out have this pavilion-looking like thing with just two walls and that's where Jesus was born? Why is it? There's a couple of reasons, but let me give you two of the influences that have, well, brought about that pretty traditional view of where Jesus was born. The first is this, a passage from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3. It says that the ox knows its master, the donkey its owner, owner's manger. Renaissance paper painters latched onto this verse. And because it mentions oxen and it mentions donkeys and, aha, a manger, they thought, this is how we will paint our nativity scenes. And so what happened is, go ahead and look. Renaissance era paintings, they all have them. The ox and the donkey. They're always there. The only problem with that? Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3 is in no way talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. It in no way is prophesying who's going to be around when the Messiah comes. In fact, it's talking about God's relationship to the obstinate people Israel who have turned their backs on him. And guess what? Even donkeys and oxen know their master, but you Israel don't. That's what it's talking about. And so what happens is you end up getting paintings of the nativity that lack the one thing the Bible does talk about, a manger. And you have Jesus sleeping on the floor. How about the inn and the innkeeper and the uh, stable out back? Where'd we get that from? Well, the gospel says in Luke chapter 2 is that there was no room in the kataluma. What's a kataluma? Well, it's not an inn. It's not an innkeeper's place. What it is, is an upper room or a guest room. That's a kataluma. In fact, Luke and the gospel say this. When Jesus celebrated that Lord's Supper, his, his Passover feast on the night before he was betrayed. This is where he did it. He did it in a kataluma. What's the word for inn or innkeeper? Well, there actually is a word in Luke and in the Greek language for that. It's pandaxian. And Luke uses this word later on in Luke chapter 10 when he wants to talk about an inn and an innkeeper. And so the idea that Mary and Joseph came hustling into town right before she gave birth and there was this innkeeper who said, no, 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 not here, it might not have happened. The Bible never says it does. But you want to know the real reason that we get this picture of Jesus next to donkeys and oxen and an innkeeper and a stable outback? It's actually because people struggle. Humankind struggles. Poets, the world's best writers and philosophers, the world's greatest Hallmark card artists and writers all struggle. And we just struggle to capture the beauty, the wonder, and the awesomeness that was and is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Everyone, you and me alike, struggle to wrap our heads around what it means that Emmanuel is here, that God is with us. So people do 
what they normally do in situations where things don't make sense. They fill in the gaps. They fill in the gaps with their stories, with their ideas about what makes sense. And it's an innocent attempt, sure, but it's, it's an attempt nonetheless to, well, for us to try to understand things. And what we're doing is making things up. But when we make up things about the nativity scene, about the birth of Jesus Christ, well, the real nativity scene, the real Christmas, well, it suffers some side effects. Let me tell you about two. The first is this. What we do is we end up sanitizing Christ and Christmas. We end up cleaning it all up so it's comfortable. And we tell the story of Christmas that makes us feel really at ease. The nativity has fresh hay all around. There is this really glow and bright lights all about this manger scene. There's no blood. There's no umbilical cord being cut. There's no noise. It's a silent night, a holy night. No crying from a baby, although he did cry later on in his life when his friend died. But not here. Not here. No pain from Mother Mary. And the shepherds? The shepherds, these guys who slept outside for months at a time, they got home, got all cleaned up, shaved, bleached their sheep white as snow, and they came. And Mary and Joseph are cool. They're calm. They're collected. Look at Joseph leaning there on his staff. And everyone gets a good night's sleep. That's the story of the nativity that we tell. Because it's clean. It's sanitized. It's comfortable, right? Here's another thing that happens when we you know, fill in the blanks and have our human view of what the nativity looked like. We moralize Christmas and Christ. We step back and say, wow, isn't this groovy? Jesus Christ brings everybody together. He brings the peasants together. He brings the shepherds together. He brings all people together and the angels, and don't forget about the animals. He brings them all together. This is what Christmas is about. It's about love, man. It's about peace, man. It's about, most of all, tolerance, man. And everyone comes every December to the manger scene, and they say, thanks, Jesus. Let's be like you. Is that what Christmas is about? See, something happens when we sanitize and we moralize Christ and Christmas. What we do is, because of these side effects, end up covering up the real reason for the season. And that's that Christ came for sinners. When we end up sanitizing Christmas, what it allows us to do is cover up the fact that, you know, hey, if Jesus came for people that look like Mary and Joseph, right, he came for people just like me, people who have their lives all together, people who are self-sufficient, people who got this. I'm able to ignore the fact that Jesus really came to clean up my animalistic behavior. He really came to clean up the mess that the sins in my life have caused or we moralize it. We moralize it and we make it all about peace and unity and love and the self-sufficient couple that's really out there trying to make it on their own and they did it, man. And we look at the manger and we take away from it nothing but a token, a little inspiration 
that we can go out and just try our best. But Christ came for sinners. The Bible is rather silent. In fact, it's completely silent. It doesn't tell us that donkeys and oxen were surrounding Jesus. It doesn't tell us if hay was, if an innkeeper was. It doesn't tell us about the building because what surrounded Jesus wasn't important. What was and is important is that when Jesus came, he came precisely to surround himself with sinners. That's what the real nativity scene looks like. That's the real people that are in the nativity scene. People who are sinners and people who have been affected by sin. For the bruised and bullied kids who are hiding behind doors, that's who surrounds Jesus. It's for the broken fathers who are groaning because of their failings as a husband and a father. That's who surrounds Jesus. For broken soldiers whimpering in the cold of that first century Bethlehem night, they surrounded Jesus. For the women of the night out there doing their thing, that's who is surrounding Jesus. It's for the blackened teeth of the homeless chattering in the cold, that's who surrounded Jesus. That's the real nativity scene. Jesus Christ, surrounded by sinners. If you, if you know the words, sing it with me. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. We sing that. He's away in a manger. His little head, his sweet head, had no crib. But why? The apostles, Luke, as he's writing his gospel, seems to be emphasizing that there's something in this manger, but what is it? Let's make one message perfectly clear. That when Jesus Christ, the King of kings, when Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords, when Jesus Christ, the commander of angel armies, descended and condescended into this world, the transcendent God well, became a baby. And the Son of God was born lowly so sinners could be holy. That's the reason Jesus was here. That's the real reason for the season. And any other picture that doesn't paint it that way covers up that reason. He came for sinners like you and me. He came for sinners, and I'll join the Apostle Paul in saying it, of whom I am the worst. That's who Jesus came for. We don't know a whole lot about Jesus' birth. What we do know is that he was born in Bethlehem. What we do know is that after he was born in Bethlehem, his mother placed him in a manger. But beyond that, we don't know much. But we do know that Jesus was born, and we do know that he was born for you. He was born for bruised children. He was born for broken fathers. He was born for wounded soldiers, and he was born for beaten women. He was born for you. He was born in a manger 
for you. It doesn't matter how far gone you feel. It doesn't matter how hurt you are. It doesn't matter the stupid decisions you've made in your life. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how dirty you are. It doesn't matter if you feel like a loser or an achiever or not. Jesus Christ came for you. And when he came into this world, he didn't just come down into this world and leave the golden streets of heaven and step into the muddy and mucky streets of Bethlehem and stand on something clean and beckon you to come out of the darkness and not dare touch it himself. No, what he did was he descended into the blackness, the mud and the darkness of our sins. He invaded the night and he did it in search of you. That's our Jesus. And the manger proclaims that message. You say, I'm too far gone. I'm a lost cause. Jesus says, I specialize in lost causes because I came to seek and save the lost. Say, not me. I'm hopeless. Not me, Jesus. I have no chance. The little baby in the manger says, I am who I am. I am your past, I am your present, and I am your future hope. All your hopes and all your fears, they're met in me tonight. Say, Jesus, I'm dirty. I'm a sinner. You don't know the dirt I've swept under the rug. You don't know the skeletons in my closet. Jesus says, yes, I do, because I took that dirt and I wiped it. I smeared it on me, and when I hung on the cross, I looked down and I saw you clean. And the slop, the slobbery animal hair that surrounded the manger scene, that surrounded a king's crib, proclaims that. I hope I didn't I didn't really want to ruin your Christmas. And I, and I hope the word that I proclaim to you this morning won't actually mess up your Christmases from here out. But what I do hope is that it changes the way you think about Christmas. It changes the Christmas spirit that you have. You don't have to sanitize yourself. You don't have to clean yourself up and pretend to be something you're not, that you're someone perfect who has it all together. Because that, my friends... That would only diminish the greatest story ever told. That Jesus Christ came into this world for sinners, of whom I am the worst, and he made me clean. He made me right with God. You don't have to moralize this story and talk about some abstract peace, hope, or acceptance that you don't understand. Because when Jesus came, he established real peace by replacing the wrath of God with peace between you and God. He gave you a real reason to be joy-filled because now when Jesus looks at you, when his father looks at you, he accepts you. And not just as a sinner, he accepts you as his son, his daughter, and no longer a sinner. But he sees a saint. That's what the manger proclaims. You're no longer a sinner. You're a saint. I suppose I could say amen there. But there's one thing I forgot. If Jesus wasn't born in a stable and he wasn't born in a barn or a cave that is somewhere where animals were kept, where was Jesus born? Well, again, we don't know because scripture doesn't say. But can I, 
Can I offer you a theory that makes a whole lot more sense than a pavilion out back that has just like two walls on it and nothing else? Let's start with what we know. Here's what we do know. They went to Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because his father, his hometown, was Bethlehem. And if you think about what that means, that the place he came from was Bethlehem, that also means that Joseph and Mary likely had family in the city of Bethlehem. And in that time, in that place, it didn't have to be your brother or sister, your mom or dad, for you to spend time in their house, although it could have been. Even a third cousin, you show up and you say, hey, I'm Joseph, son of Jacob, from the house and line of David. Come on in. And everyone was there for a census. So it makes sense that they may have stayed with family. We also know this because of archaeology. We know what first century homes in Palestine looked like. They looked like this. They had a bottom floor and they have a top floor called, there it is again, a kataluma, the place that had no room. So you picture a house of a family member that a lot of family members come to for a census that they all have to take and they have to come to their hometown to take. And the young couple comes in, they come in late. And by the way, Mary's not climbing no ladders at nine months pregnant. And so she sleeps on the air mattress down on the first floor. And all the family is there. One more thing that we know. We know that Joseph was a carpenter the type of guy who measured twice, cut once. He doesn't strike me at the kind of guy who would wait until the 11th hour, the ninth month of pregnancy to bring his wife to town. The idea that they were riding in on this donkey as Mary's water broke and she's like, I gotta find some place to give birth to this child. It probably didn't happen. Luke chapter two, verse six says, while they were there, the time came. The literal translation is while they were there, the, the time came had come, literally the time of her pregnancy had come. So while they were there, that happened. They may have been there. So picture the scene. It's a family's home, kind of like Christmas time, with lots of family packed and sleeping everywhere. And they've been there, maybe a month, taking the census, hanging out. And they're not ready to make the 70-mile journey back home because why? She's pregnant. And so everyone's gathered around, relatives and friends of Mary and Joseph. It's Joseph's cousin, Benny. He's there, and everyone knows he's a tax collector and the thief. Like some of you. There's Uncle Wayne. He's there, and everyone knows he's just a whiner and a complainer, although he claims to be a believer. He just whines and complains all the time like some of you. Aunt Sue's there sleeping at the house and Aunt Sue, you don't tell your secrets to because she's a gossip, just like some of you. Grandpa Gary's there and he's racist and homophobic and says unbelievable things, just like some of you. There's Uncle Martin and Aunt Sheila and everyone knows that their marriage is just a mess. They're there. The neighbor, Carl, he's over, and at every family meal, he pretends to be one of the family members and drinks way too much, just like some of you. All these people are gathered there. They're all sleeping in the Cataluma in the upper room. And then on that silent night, 
that most holy of nights, Mary wakes up her husband and says, Joseph, it's time. And so all the aunties come rushing in because they're going to be the midwives. They hurry everyone to get upstairs and get out of the way. So Mary has room to give birth to her child. And everyone's on pins and needles all night long, listening because they have to, waiting because they want to. And then an aunt rushes upstairs. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Everyone goes silent because they're waiting. They're watching Joseph because here comes the tradition, the part where the father names the child. And Joseph just stands there, mouth open. So Grandpa Gary goes, Joseph, the name. He says, his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And everyone cheers. Everyone goes crazy. Everyone starts hugging each other that no one really notices that a bunch of stinky, smelly shepherds come into the house and bring cigars and start rejoicing with everybody and just going crazy. And Mary steps back, sits back, treasures up all these things and ponders them in her heart. Because these people had done, have been doing what Christians before Christ and what Christians since Christ have all been doing. They've been getting ready for this baby. And it's finally here. Amen. Amen.